So I'm going to read the fourth chapter of John Cahoon's book, Evangelical Repentance. And this chapter is called The Difference Between True and Counterfeit Repentance. Oh, I think that distinction is so important, and I've struggled so long to really understand it. And I pray that somebody out there listening would be blessed in knowing more about true evangelical repentance and that the Holy Spirit would work in their life through this recording. Okay, chapter four, the difference between true and counterfeit repentance. It is a truth clearly revealed and often inculcated in scripture that without repentance, a man cannot attain eternal life in heaven. The most of men, therefore, who read and hear the gospel admit that repentance is necessary to their future safety and felicity. But while they believe that it cannot be well with them except they repent, they resolve with a fatal precipitance to call something by this name which bears only a faint resemblance to it. And then they flatter themselves that this base counterfeit will not only be acceptable to God, but will even recommend them to his favor. Persuading themselves that they have already repented, they compose themselves to sleep on the pillow of carnal security, and they will not believe that any of the dreadful threatenings denounced in Scripture against impenitent sinners belongs to them. Thus many go down to the grave with a lie in their right hand. They obstinately refuse to be convinced of their fatal mistake till they begin to lift up their despairing eyes in torment. That my reader may, not through ignorance, deceive himself with a repentance which must be repented of, I shall endeavor to show him the difference between a true and a counterfeit repentance, as distinctly and plainly as I can, under the following particulars. 1. False repentance flows from a counterfeit faith of the law as a covenant of works, but true repentance follows a true faith, both of the law and of the gospel. False repentance arises from a counterfeit faith of the violated law in its covenant form. Hence it is often styled legal repentance, and the conviction of sin which excites it, legal conviction. It flows from that temporary faith of the commands and curses of the broken law, which a legalist, when his conscience is at any time alarmed, reluctantly exercises. When the holy law strikes his conscience, he is forced to believe that it requires from him perfect obedience as the condition of life, and that its tremendous curse for innumerable instances of disobedience is pronounced against him. Galatians 3.10 The righteous law claims perfect obedience as due from him and condemns him for his disobedience. His awakened conscience concurs with the precept and curse of the law, so that he begins to be greatly alarmed the only refuge from the curse of the law to which he has recourse in order to pacify his guilty conscience, to satisfy divine justice, and to lay a foundation of hope, is resolutions, reformations, duties, and other self-righteous schemes. The defects of his endeavor and attainments create new fears. These fears excite new endeavors, and thus the legal penitent goes on without attaining to the law of righteousness, because he seeks it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Romans 9, 31 and 32. As he may at the same time have a temporary faith of the gospel, he may pretend some regard to Christ in 
this his legal process. He may hope that God, for the sake of Christ, will accept his repentance and forgive his sins. And what is this but a secret hope that the redemption of Jesus Christ will impart such merit to his tears, reformations, and works as will make them effectual to atone for his sins and to purchase the favor of God? He cannot trust that God will show mercy to him till, by his penitence and reformation, he recommend himself to his favor. On the other hand, the characters of true repentance are directly opposite to those now mentioned. It follows a sincere, a spiritual faith, both of the law and of the gospel. Whilst a true conviction, conviction of sin and misery flows from a spiritual belief of the law with application to oneself, a true sense of sin from which genuine repentance springs arises from a sincere faith, both of the law and of the gospel. It is the immediate consequence of a sincere faith of pardoning mercy. There is forgiveness with thee, says the psalmist, that thou may be feared. 134. Godly sorrow for sin and turning from the law, turning from the love and practice of sin to the love and practice of holiness flow, as was stated above, from reliance on the righteousness of Jesus Christ for all our title to pardon and sanctification and from trusting in him for pardoning mercy and sanctifying grace. Hence it is called evangelical repentance. The acting of true faith produces, in order of nature, the exercise of this repentance. He who would repent acceptable must first believe in Christ, that he may so repent. Hebrews 11.6, Acts 11.21 He must believe that there is safety in entrusting his guilty soul to Christ before he can, with sincerity and good courage, turn from all sin to God in him. He must be united to Christ by faith, as the branch to the vine, before he can bring forth such fruit as is meet for repentance. Accordingly, the true penitent approaches to a gracious God with deep convictions of his guilt and of his desert of eternal rejection from him. But then he comes before a mercy seat. He relies on the blood of Jesus Christ for purification from his innumerable sins. And from that he takes encouragement to mourn before the Lord and to express himself in the language of the royal penitent. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51, 2 and 10. That is the prospect which both encourages and invigorates his humble supplications for mercy and grace. That is it which embitters all his sins to him, which makes him loathe them and long earnestly for complete deliverance from the love and practice of them. Here the attentive reader cannot but discern the difference, nay, contrariety between a guilty flight from God like that of Adam after his fall and a humbling, self-condemning approach to his pardoning mercy, like that of the prodigal when returning to his father's house, between slavish and proud endeavors to atone for our sins and to make our peace with God by our own righteousness and resorting solely to the blood of Christ for cleansing from all sin. Similarly, 
He sees the difference between mourning for our own danger by sin and mourning for our sins themselves as the basest injuries done to God in Christ and to the mercy and love which were displayed to us in Christ. And again, he sees the difference between attempting a new life by the strength of our own resolutions and endeavors and trusting only in the mercy of the Lord Jesus for sanctifying as well as for justifying grace. 2. Counterfeit repentance proceeds only from a sense of danger and a dread of wrath, but true repentance is a sincere mourning for sin, a loathing of ourselves in our own sight for it, and an earnest desire of deliverance from the power and practice of it. In false repentance, the sinner is most affected with the dreadful consequences of his transgression. Isaiah 59, 9-12. But in evangelical or true repentance, the believer is chiefly affected with the malignity and odiousness of sin itself as contrary to the holy nature and law of God. Luke 15, 21. In false repentance, the conscience of the sinner is alarmed by a sense of his dreadful guilt and danger, and then it cannot but remonstrate loudly against those sins which threaten him with intolerable and eternal torment. Hence those terrors which are frequently found among awakened sinners under apprehensions of approaching death. At such times, their innumerable sins stare them in their face, and their high aggravations are remembered with bitter remorse. Conscience draws up the indictment, the indictment and brings home the charge against them. The violated law condemns them without mercy, and what have they now in prospect? What but a certain fearful looking for a judgment and fiery indignation to devour them? Now with what deep distress they will cry out and howl upon their beds because of the heinousness and demerit of their sins. With what amazement will they expect the tremendous outcome of their sinful course? How ready will they now be to make resolutions of beginning a humble, a circumspect, a holy life. Under this their terror, conscience like a flaming sword keeps them from their former course of impiety and sensuality. And what is all this repentance but the fear of the worm that never dies and of the fire that never that shall never be quenched? Let conscience but be pacified and the tempest of the troubled mind allayed, and these false penitents will return with the dog to his vomit. 2 Peter 2.22 Until some new alarm revives their convictions of sin and danger, and with them the same process of repentance. Thus many sin and repent and repent and sin all their lives. Or it may be, Distress of conscience makes a deeper impression and fixes such an abiding dread of some particular sins that a visible reformation appears. Yet in this case, the sinner's lusts are only dammed up by his fears, and were the dam but broken down, they would immediately run again in their former channel with increasing force. It is true, this legal terror is, in many of the elect, a preparative to evangelical repentance. Many true penitents were sometime in the same distressing circumstances and at first began from no better principle than self-love to flee from the wrath to come. It was said that false repentance proceeds only from a sense of danger 
and a dread of impending wrath. The character of true repentance is the very reverse. Sin itself becomes the heaviest burden and the object of the greatest abhorrence and dread to the sincere penitent. As evangelical repentance flows from the faith of pardoning mercy, the fear of hell, though it may sometimes accompany godly sorry for sin, yet forms no part of this repentance. Godly sorrow springs from an affecting and humbling sense of the dishonor and injury which the true penitent sees he has done to a gracious God by his transgression in the first Adam, by the sin of his nature and the innumerable evils of his, in, of his life. This is the grievance, this the distress of every true penitent. His language runs like this. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Mine iniquities are gone over mine head as an heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore my heart faileth me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. That's Psalm 51, 3, 38, 4, 39, 8, 119, 133, 40, 12 to 13. Here we see that the sincere penitent mourns for and abhors all his lusts, whether of the flesh or of the mind, and longs to be completely devoured, <laughs> delivered from them. He is willing that none should be spared, no, not even a right hand or a right eye. How great and obvious, then, is the difference between being struck with dread, restrained by terror, or driven from a course of sinning by the lashes of an awakened conscience, between this, I say, and loathing ourselves in our own sight for our iniquities and abominations, and vehemently desiring grace to mortify our corruption, that we may be freed from the power of sin. The former is merely the fruit of self-love, which urges the soul to flee from danger. The latter is the exercise of a vital principle, which separates the soul from sin and engages the whole man in a persevering opposition to it.